Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined as usual by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning, gents. Good morning. Morning. On this month's episode, David, Will and I are going to be talking about Europe and whether the region could be set for a bout of outperformance, our thoughts on a sector we've not been enamoured with for some time in property, and luxury goods company LVMH, who've been happy holders of for many years in the multi-asset funds. However, as usual, before we get going on with the show, here are the usual do's and don'ts to keep us on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. So, gents, it seems uh, that apart from our final topic, we're going to be talking this month about areas we perhaps haven't liked for very long and why perhaps maybe they've got a bit more appeal for us now. So firstly, let's turn our gaze to one of David's evergreen predictions. Uh, In his predictions blog, uh, this year was no different, um, that the US will outperform Europe. So very simply, David, are you going to have to eat some humble pie come January the 1st, 2024? No. And, and that's next time. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just clarify what I mean by no, because I can never be wrong in a way. Um, I mean, I'm not knowingly wrong very often, but um, he, he joked. Uh, yeah, no, I think what do I mean by US outperforming Europe? I'm really talking about the US economy outperforming the European economy. And I'm still pretty, pretty happy with that conviction. I don't normally mean the US market versus the European market, although I know that's how most people think about it. In the UK investment industry, certainly in the 40 odd years now I've been in it, it, we've always allocated equities, UK, US, Europe, UK, et cetera, et cetera. And it's never been more meaningless, to be quite honest with you. There are some incredible European companies we invest in some of them. I guess, you know, we don't benchmark the funds, but if you actually looked at our European allocation of the last four or five years, I think technically, you know, someone looking at versus the index, we'd have been overweight Europe, despite my, my predictions, as you put it, because a lot of these companies have global earnings. So yes, they are, they're listed in France or Denmark or, or whatever, but actually they're just global companies in the same way the FTSE is populated. So allocating between European equities, US, UK, you know, I just don't believe in that, to be quite honest with you. So it is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek prediction. But getting back to the real point and why why we're discussing it today is there's a number of issues when looking at the European markets. One, it, you know, it's a very fragmented market. You've got you've got the market in Northern Europe and Southern Europe, which have quite different dynamics. You know, despite many of those companies being listed in EU countries, so outside some Switzerland and Norway, etc. They're still fragmented economies in terms of f- fiscal policies. There's still lots of domestic drivers. So in the main, we do like European companies that are more global outwardly looking. We are less enamored of the domestic European businesses that have, where their revenues are dominated by the domestic consumer. Going back to my original point, you know, we still think European economies, for all the reasons we discussed before, the fact that the regulatory situation in the European Union tends to be more negative than in the US. Clearly, antitrust or competition laws are, are, are more severe in Europe. Labour laws are tighter. All the things we, we normally talk about in terms of why does the return on equity 
lower in Europe versus the US over time. Yet that hasn't really changed. I mean, please challenge if you want to, but I, I don't think it has really. So we're always going to prefer the US just because it's easier to do business there. I don't think I can challenge you too much on that. I don't think I want to really. Uh, I was just trying to think if any of our companies that we own probably have more than sort of 50% of revenues coming from Europe, despite the fact we own a number of European companies. And I'm not sure I could point to one where I think that's the case. I mean, with these big global companies, including the ones in the US, they typically have a European footprint and European revenues, but it's very rarely dominant in the types of names that we own. I mean, looking at the the outform, I mean, a lot of it sometimes sounds like excuses, David, that your prediction's not quite going your way. Um, <laughs> no, it's just flexibility. I and, you know, you're, you're a few percent behind year to date. And I think part of that, again, is, is going back to China. You know, we talked about this before. I can't remember if we talked about it in the last podcast, but I think with Chinese markets reopening, or Chinese economies reopening quite quickly, and I think a lot quicker than people expected. I think a lot of people underweight China, maybe came out of China last year, sort of seeing it as less investable, some people investable, some people calling it uninvestable. And given the vault fast that you've had in China, can you then pile back into Chinese equities? And if, if you feel like you can't, then maybe the way to do it is, is a proxy through Europe where European industrials have a lot of you know Chinese revenues, a number of the consumer discretionary businesses, we'll talk about LVMH in due course, have decent China exposure. So I don't know if that's been part of it. You know, the dollar's obviously been a bit weaker as well of late, which can help sort of any any area outside of the US, quite frankly. And suppose we've had a bit of better data coming from Europe as well now. Sort of sceptical of that. Craig, you've talked a bit about the central banks and European central bank looking like might be the most hawkish. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly look like the most hawkish in the room when you listen to some of the commentary over the last couple of weeks. I mean, just to pick out a few that I was looking at this morning, you know, one member said interest rates have got to go to levels that significantly restrict the economy and hikes are going to need to persist beyond March. Another tightening has had little effect on prices. Another one, significant rate rises were still required. So whether they're talking tough, a bit like the Fed have been doing to a certain extent, or whether they genuinely mean it remains to be seen. But I guess, you know, if they do remain the most hawkish in there, and that's going to make life difficult, even for those European companies, as cost of capital is going to get pushed higher. Yeah, but there are some good growth companies in Europe that people tend to forget about, particularly in the kind of the mid-cap area. And and, they, and and actually, you know, that was an area that was really hurt last year. The European mid-caps were highly correlated to the NASDAQ, it seemed. I haven't seen the actual data, but it certainly felt like <laughs> on a day-to-day basis looking at the portfolios. And we do have some mid-cap names. And again, it's worth re- stressing, there are greater risks in European mid-cap than US mid-cap. They're smaller less liquid. There are still a lot of European companies with dominant family shareholders. You've got to be careful of government. I always find it quite ironic, just slight tangent, just forgive me, that you know a lot of the ESG agencies having to go at US governance and the separation of duties. And yet in Europe, there's still a lot of companies where there are controlling stakes by, by uh, founding families and the free float's quite low. So, you know, people in glass houses, etc. Anyway, back to the story. Um, so you do have to be aware that, you know, I think in the names in Europe you want to own, particularly in the mid-cap, where there are some exciting growth stories, you you, you are going to buy some volatility there. And we, we definitely saw that last year. A lot of the names of the sustainable funds 
are European mid-caps because of bigger exposure to the core funds because that's where we're finding some of those great ideas uh, that Europe seems to be leading on, you know, some of those technologies in the sustainable space. There's really, really exciting opportunities in Europe, but they do come with a bit of a bit of that risk health warning. They do, and I think the other side that we can't leave out is talking about the energy picture because regardless of where your revenues are, quite a lot of these European names, you know, particularly the industrial side, are manufacturing in Europe. And, you know, the energy prices have gone through the roof. And quite frankly, they've been massively bailed out by a warmer winter. So pretty much from the moment that autumn in theory started, the weather has been very kind to Europe. And I think if it had been a cold snap or even a relatively normal winter it could have made life very difficult for them. Just looking at the figures of last year where um, industrials are using 20% less energy, yeah. households and buildings are using less energy. They've Because, I mean, I think legally they've ter- had to yeah. force people yeah. to turn down the thermostats. I remember when you you were going on holiday, weren't you? Um, and the hotel, I think, you would <laughs> say that, you, you know, they had to turn down a thermostat legally. So they've done a good job of reducing energy, um, but I do think they've been slightly bailed out. And I think that, picture just still hangs over them you know cost of energy is still gas is three times what it was in 2021 that's not changing yeah there's no room for complacency definitely on that but again but it is interesting how sentiments take siemens for example now Mm. siemens if you'd have asked me 18 months ago i said boring old german conglomerate bad old european wow how how wrong that would have been um and certainly we were well educated by one of the leading analysts on siemens and and helped us Come to, to, I couldn't believe we were buying Siemens at the time. I thought, crikey, you know, and what, what a turnaround story that's been, sort of the discipline around the capital allocation, shedding of non-core businesses. So even in large cap, maybe there are some, oh, you can't call Siemens a hidden gem, that would be ridiculous, but certainly <laughs> maybe there are some opportunities where there's some proper capital restructuring going on in names that normally you would have said, no, I wouldn't touch those with a barge pole where valuation is probably not as stretched as in the US. So I'm kind of talking against my prediction yeah. in a way. Uh, I wouldn't rush out and buy sort of Volkswagen yet and just, just you know, or the, the European autos. But, you know, I do, I do think that um, it has been unloved. Um, and I'd be one of those that have not loved them. And, uh, you know, as we come towards Valentine's Day, maybe we need to find our love for Europe again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to that point, I mean, less so around the restructuring, but certainly on the valuation. I've read some pieces recently that, that are yet again banging the drum for European banks, you know, looking at relative valuations and, and you know, looking at yields pushing higher, should NIMS... But then you just look back at European banks again and and the ECB even recently have been saying we need to take another look at these bad loan books because risk management's been poor. They've been misclassifying certain risky loans. And I just think, you know, European banking does not feel like it's turned enough of a corner to warrant being anything like a valuation of the US bank on. I'm going to take a leap of faith, but not not, not a complete and utter leap into the dark, right? So (laughs) I think think European banks, again, I mean, you know, Credit Suisse have clearly... Um, doing some serious restructuring, probably more reactively than practically. I think it's probably fair to say. Yeah, you know, so they are sorting themselves out, I think. But yeah, I'm not ready to, to dive into European banks because again, you know, European banks are clearly levered into into the GDP in Europe. And I'm, having sort of taken back some of my reticence on Europe, I'm not willing yet to say Europe GDP will outstrip the states. Although, if you're right on China, I suppose it's not impossible. I don't know. I think some of those zombie companies we've talked about before in Europe, um, as refinancing costs move up. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is 
if they were sensible, they've termed out a lot of those loans as far as possible, I'm sure, <laughs> over the last couple of years. Yeah. And if you didn't, I'm not sure what you were doing. Um, so maybe that's bought them some time. But I think for me, that's just an ongoing headwind for the European economy and for the banks. And I'm very happy out. Excellent. Well, you know, that's that's Europe covered for now. Anyway, um, let's turn our gaze across to another area we haven't liked very much, actually, which is property. You know, we've not really found much opportunity over the years for a number of reasons. I think in the UK, it's typically been because, you know, the REITs market here is is quite traditional in the commercial property exposures. Also, they can tend to be perhaps a little bit less liquid at times, as David mentioned earlier, right? European mid-caps, you know, UK REITs can sometimes look a bit less liquid than we'd be comfortable with. But US REITs, slightly different. And I think, you know, kind of caught our gaze from across the Atlantic. And, you know, the REIT sector in the US is a lot more diverse. It's a lot more specialised. And also importantly, generally a lot more liquid. And, you know, the opportunity set is ultimately just a bit different there. And clearly, we've, you know, we've been happy to take some exposure in certain specialised areas in the US REITs market recently. So, Will, do you want to kick us off here? What's going on in that market? And do you want to touch on a bit more of that broad appeal that we're seeing now? Yeah, well, I think I'm going to have to be a little bit careful here because otherwise property specialists, are, I'm not going to be on their Christmas card list um, <laughs> or their Valentine's list. <laughs> You've got um, a list, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, the UK market, you know, we've dabbled in that space before, but the liquidity is very, very different and difficult for us. You know, look at most of these REITs, they're one to two billion. Um, and so getting out in a material position and, you know, we're growing a bit. So you're talking a 10, 20 million pound position for it to be meaningful. That's going to become extremely difficult for us. Um, they can be quite tightly held as well, uh, which makes it even more difficult to come in and out of. And then just the, as you say, the opportunity set there, you've got the bigger ones, which are the British lands, the land securities, you're kind of getting that generic bit of office, you know, bit of warehouse. <laughs> I always tend to sort of edge towards the hottest property sector. <laughs> um, you got your tri taxes, which we used to own until they slightly changed their business model. And then you got a bit of healthcare, bit of student property. And it's really just not for us. You miss shops. Miss shops. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm talking about investable universe. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> quite right. Yeah, yeah, retail. Quite right. I, take, I take it um, back. Yeah. And you look at the US, as you say, it's you know, one point six trillion sector and 130 companies. It's a bit different because once upon a time it was in the finance sector and it's been peeled out to become its own sector. So it's kind of new, if you like. I think that happened in 2016, so I guess seven years, but it still feels quite <laughs> new for some. And it's an area that took a lot of pain last year. Um, now, rightly so in some areas. Again, you know, all the areas that we don't like in the UK, kind of don't like in the US for similar reasons, you know, office, shopping malls, for example. But there are many more interesting areas that, that we're starting to, you know, view as being a bit more positive. And some names we have held and we have, you know, Equinix and then we've had, and we can come back to that. Uh, we've had that for a good few years now. And I think last year, these REITs took an absolute pasting, mainly because of rates. And as we know, and again, you saw that in the UK and as valuations. well. They, they and were, valuations. They, they had a good yeah. run, right? So yeah, they were expensive. Yeah. And maybe because rates were just coming down. And last year, I think about 25% losses uh, you took on REITs. Uh, one of the worst performing sectors, they unformed the S&P. And as I say, just starting to look into that space. And some of these businesses we quite like, they can be quite defensive 
um, through difficult economic periods. They can be quite good at pushing price. And again, it depends on the space that you're looking at. And that's kind of why we've been digging in to just find those names we think can be quite resilient. The valuations come back looking much more attractive. And so I think generally you've got some supportive tailwinds for some of the names in this space. And, you know, I don't know, we can talk about a couple of individual names. Yeah, before we do that, I mean, I think just come back to the UK just very quickly. I mean, the one trade that's been, when you talk about tritax, I mean, we sold out a couple of, quite a couple of years ago now, probably a bit early, but it was the trade right in the, in the UK property market. It was everyone was everyone you spoke to was overweight warehouses, which just makes you nervous to start with, right? And you know, we did probably get the peak warehouses during COVID. I think it's fair to say, and it does look as though that. I and mean, there was definitely a structural trend. We that's why we bought Tritax in the first place, right? It, it, it was a kind of a a, a second order of impact of, of, of online, and and it was absolutely the right trade. It's now a mature market. It's still probably a good place to be, big box kind of rent uh, rental market. But it, yeah, it's not a new idea anymore, and everyone, everyone knows it. And it is probably, and it was almost the only investable sector left. Mm-hmm. Do you want to own industrial units when you know you're looking at recession? Question mark. Do you want to own shops? Well, you know, unless you're American Candy, you're not buying shops up at the moment. I notice even in Princess Street now in Edinburgh, American Candy's got up there. And as you said, you know, there's, there's tradition. You, know, you always think about the commercial property market. It's retail, retail out of, out of town, office London, office outside London, industrial units with kind of your higher yielding, higher risk piece. Uh, and then you have some niche stuff, medical centers where the government was your only tenant. And apparently that wasn't risky. Good luck, good <laughs> luck with that. Where you go to the US and probably Australia, I mean, the Australian REITs market and the US market are the most mature, the most longest standing and where you, you have much more specialization, I guess. And you've got a much wider share owner base. They, you know, the US REITs market is a core sector in the US. In the UK, it's always been wealth managers and, and charities have pretty much dominated the investment. And so you were always investing alongside people like yourself with the same kind of push-pull factors, which is great when it's going up. It's not, It's pretty painful when it's going down. So the US REITs market just feels like a much more normalized competitive market. It's clearly correlated to rates. It does have that equity beta, REITs do, as opposed to bricks and mortar. But obviously, you've got much better liquidity than, and you're not going to get gated in the US REITs unless something goes horribly wrong. And so it's such a broad place to look at. You can be much more precise in the exposure and we've bought different REITs so far. We've, we've started taking a step into them, different REITs for different strategies. So for example, in strategic income fund, we've bought, um, public storage, which is, if you think, I guess in the UK, the equivalent would be what big yellow. Big yellow so, um, you know, in, in the big cities in the States, you know, storage units, uh, you know, um, there is a scarcity value, but the other part of the pie here is that the di- digitization of this industry. And, and of course, yeah, everyone gets excited about tech in, 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 over the last two, three years in, during COVID, but actually the digitization that's going on in, in old, in older industries is actually quite interesting because it means that the companies like public storage don't need to employ staff. It, it's, it's equivalently a travel lodge person in a way, you know, where everyone self checks in now and, and you get your own key with your smart card and your credit card and you open your room door with the credit card. You don't even need a key, right? If you think about digitization in a business like public storage, 
you know, you could run that business very light on labor costs. Well, now they have the app, they have that e-rental where you can do your contract with no, not talking to a person, all on your phone. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a business ripe for that kind of efficiency and, and increasing productivity. And, it, you know, with rates where they are today, you know, it's still not cheap. I mean, the REITs have come down, a bit like technology stocks, they've come down. I mean, you wouldn't say they were dirt cheap because these are still quality businesses. Public storage is probably not quite a duopoly, but it, it certainly dominates the US. It's a very fragmented market as well. So you kind of got the couple of big players and then loads of mum and pop, you know, that don't have the scale to do a lot of that digitization, obviously. That, that's right. And uh, <laughs> I love the mum and pop. Um, <laughs> um, you got caught out that the other day, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm showing my age, but one of my younger team members didn't know what that meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a veteran now. Um, as far as I go with this. Yes. So, so, so it feels like a business that, that could, grow margin and, and, and grow from here. Um, yes, it's not going to grow at 10% per annum, but it feels like a more defensive business when we got you know, less clarity around the economic cycle in the next two to three years. It feels like in its particular strategic income fund, it yields around 2.8%. It's not huge, uh, which is not bad for the US though. And I, I just feel as a diversifier with income strategy, it's the right kind of business from here that's going to um, probably increase income year on year and grow the income stream through through that. I think that resiliency piece as well, you know, also bleeds in, Will, to the American Tower that we bought recently that I know, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work on and, you know, that's got that resiliency factor, but the, the, the sort of tailwind piece as well from, you know, 5G only being halfway through the rollout and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly what we're looking for, right? And one of the interesting things I think is you often looked at the US, I think, Historically, I think as a UK investing might be like, well, UK is constrained in terms of land, so it's a good thing to buy. Whereas the US got loads of land, you know, and they can build anywhere. And it's not quite like that. <laughs> and, you know, again, you think about New York, you know, actually very difficult to get space and those who have got it, you know, so that comes at a premium. I was actually going to focus a bit more on the sort of data center piece, which I think is really interesting because you think, okay, US got a lot of land, they can just build these data centers wherever. And they have been. And actually, supply has been coming on. And to a certain extent, that was constraining price slightly. But we still like this space because if you think about the demand for this space, it's absolutely huge. The rise of data, the rise of content. None of that goes away, right? I mean, Craig, you haven't deleted an email pretty much since you joined Rathbones. <laughs> In my time, I'm sure that, yeah, Exactly. Can you remember the last time you deleted a picture? You know, because we just have more and more yeah. and more storage. And that's got to go somewhere. All these businesses moving everything onto the cloud. That's got to be in these data. It's got to go into these data centers. So that demand space is, is really, really strong. But on the supply side, these data centers, they create, they need huge amounts of energy. Um, now, admittedly, they're doing better on that. And a lot of that's renewable, but they're still taking energy from the grid and water as well. And so historically, whilst in, you know, you've seen a lot of growth in supply, people are starting to realize this. Um, and so actually that supply is getting now constrained materially and actually it's becoming much more difficult to get permission to build these data centers. And hence, so suddenly you've got big demand coming and you've got constrained supply. And so those with those data centers already, you know, it's mission critical, absolutely. So the pricing power of these businesses is actually going up. And it sounds like a simple business, but it's not. Because if you think about it, these, these data centers, they literally power the cloud and the internet, right? Yeah. And the most important thing is consistency and continuity. And that's, and, and if you're Amazon or Alphabet or uh, Microsoft, you know, the three major players in the cloud provision and the telcos and, and everybody else who's reliant on this, you're going to demand continuity. 
Okay, that that is the number one. You're going to be, yeah, you're going to still, you know, you're going to, you're going to look at price, but ultimately you're going to go with the provider who's got that um, track record of supply. Um, yes, also renewable energy. I mean, Equinix. I think something like more than ninety percent of Equinix's energy is renewable. It may even be ninety five percent, and I know they're working towards a hundred percent. So they also are going to tick the the ESG box, which will be coming as a supplier to these bigger business will become even more important. So they are developing those barriers to entry as they go. And it, it, it is a classic industry where it's going to end up being one or two global players that dominate here because they have the expertise and the scale and the buying power of that energy. Because ultimately that, that's also, you know, it's a key input cost, right? So I, I think this is really interesting. Now Equinix again, you, you, it's not it's not cheap. You're paying up for it's it. It's not unknown. It's not unknown. <laughs> uh, it's well, it's well, it's probably more well known than public storage, particularly in the UK. But yeah, for us, it's just a long term play. You, you, you have to be, you know, vigilant. You have to take profits when it, when it moves up. Cause it, 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 it the valuation. Is it tasty in your your league table of? Uh, <laughs> <That's tasty. laughs> I think that's a new one. Yeah, it's spicy and lively. I think it's certainly it's yeah it's borderline a bit spicy. So you've got to be careful and watch your eye with it. But I do think it's a really again great diversifier. It's a nice tech story that doesn't have that volatility that that some of the pure plays have. And American Tower, well, again, you know, for us. We're just looking to be a bit more defensive. American Towers, I think all the portfolios bar, bar strat income. I think it's sustainable as well, isn't it? Yeah. So American Tower for us, you know, we're just trying to look at this year. How are we going to be more defensive? And it's, you know, typically you go into staples and utilities. I'm kind of thinking of these REITs are a bit more like utilities in a way. Um, I think they, they have got pricing power. They often have the you know, American Tower, there was a duopoly on, on mobile towers much, yeah. in, in the States. And, and also that they, they do have, um, a non-US business as well, which they're growing. So there is some potential growth as well, but these feel like defensive sectors, albeit not cheap defensive sectors that you wouldn't call these value stocks. I don't think value will be defensive going into the rest of this year. And we're just trying to be a little bit more, creative if you like in, in what what is the new defensives i'm hoping you can <laughs> time will tell at the end of the year but th- this feels more comfortable for me rather than when we talk about staples last podcast i just feel more comfortable in this these sorts of areas than i do going into uh into the staples so on that note talking about resiliency talking about defensiveness we'll turn our eye to a company which i believe i'm reliably informed that actually during 08 uh, only had one quarter of uh, negative organic sales growth in lvmh so you know uh it, it's a business that luxury goods company made its founder and chairman and ceo and his family top of the forbes billionaires list uh, most recently since elon musk has, has kind of uh, dripped away a little bit as tesla's share price has fallen but we recently spoke actually about valuations and you mentioned them again today are sort of uh, are lively and are spicy and i think you know if I think about the price of LVMH's goods, they're probably pretty spicy for the average person. Uh, but again, the point is here that a lot of the people that frequent those shops, spicy is kind of where they live. Uh, so ultimately, you know, for them, whether it's economic weakness or an point economic uh, situation, they're probably going to LVMH, going to buy their luxury goods. And I think, you know, that resiliency uh, has stood the test of time and hopefully it will continue to do so. But, but will... Will 2023 be any different for LVMH if we do see a period of weakness? I mean, I am amazed at the resilience of luxury goods. 
perhaps that shows that I'm not <laughs> not in that bracket. I don't live in the spicy world. No. Um, but, you know, the, I mean, the average bag, the entry level bag, I can't remember what it's called, the Neverfull, I think it's called. Get you. Yeah, get Neverfull. me. Um, 1,500 quid. Wow. Um, so Valentine's Day, David, um, you know, you like a bag. Um, I'm, 50, I'm 58, right? Don't <laughs> you also do a golf bag, 16,000. Wow. Um, how much was your man bag, Craig? <laughs> I think we're having a problem with two man bags. There is. I did a little bit of dig on this. There is an urban satchel, which is $150,000, wow. made with finest leather, but also plastic bottles and cigarette wrappers. Recy um, recycled. Recycled. Okay. That feels like a high margin product if they're building it, it with does. cigarette wrappers. It does. I'm not sure it's going to get into the sustainable funds. No, <laughs> no um, probably not. But... You know, they do have very high quality. They have incredible brands. Um, and as you say, the average consumer of them, their average customer, doesn't seem to feel the recession as keenly as others. And they've shown in their latest results, which are extremely strong, you know, they just seem to keep growing earnings. You've got that element of family control, which you mentioned. Mm. Um, I think he's just uh, made his daughter the head of, Dior, doesn't he? I think so, yeah. um, so there is an element of risk there and, and what the succession planning looks like because he's 73. Although he has not just apparently anywhere. said that extending retirement out has become in vogue. So obviously as a fashion brand, I suppose he's <laughs> latching onto I, that. I totally fashion. support that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic business. It's extremely resilient. Evaluation looks okay. Can it be completely resilient through a deep recession? No, as you say, 08, 08. But even through a mild recession in this kind of environment where you do, sadly, one could argue, have that 1%, a top 10% still doing very, very well, this business could be quite resilient. But let's also look at the potential. I mean, I don't think it's, it's definitely not cheap, right? It's not a cheap stock. Mm -hmm. But it's, LVMH is obviously everything's Louis Vuitton and, and Craig's man bag. But actually, <laughs> you know, there's Moe Hennessy in here as well. Um, and with Chinese reopening, travel industry reopening in, in Asia as well, you know, LVMH is, it, it has a big travel channel, as, 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 as we're aware. Um, you know, Bista might recover again soon. Um, but Moe and Hennessy, again, cognac, um, not many makers of cognac. I mean, Remy, obviously, a, a key competitor. There are some potentially cyclical elements at the moment that are quite unique because of what's going on with, with China. So now, is that already in the price? Maybe. So, you know, buyer beware, I, you know, I wouldn't be filling my boots today with it. But as a long-term, you know, part of a portfolio, these kind of names do make sense because, yeah, the reality, unfortunately, is that inflation hurts the lower incomes the most, has the biggest impact on the availability of spend for the lower incomes, middle and lower incomes. As you say, those higher income, wealthy people who can afford your £150,000, whatever it was, satchel, will still be able to afford it next year unless they were mad off or some kind of, <laughs> of those strange billionaires that suddenly run out of money. So I think it, it is almost like it has cyclicality, but it's, it's, it's quite modest, I think. And it's relatively, and this is a very dangerous thing to say, it feels like a relatively defensive stock, although you probably wouldn't see many analysts call it that. I think they also showed what they can do with brands. If you remember when they took over Tiffany's a couple yeah. of years ago, which I have to say at the time, I was 
on Shulron. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not exactly outside of their wheelhouse, uh, but I was looking since then, they've doubled earnings of yeah. Tiffany's um, to a billion, which is remarkable. It just shows that, you know, their strength in marketing and brand creation. But not by, sorry to drop, but not by discounting and not by no, not, not damaging the brand that some of the American brand owners have done in the past, right? And this is where Europe does do luxury, I think, better than the US, right? In the sense that they are so... That their, their attitude to brand, the way they protect that brand premium is, is phenomenal. Which I, if you look at Ralph Lauren and look at some of those US brands, not sure they've done that as well. You know, you walk around Swindon, everyone's got a Ralph Lauren um, polo shirt, right? Not sure they, they're quite as uh, keen on that. Well, they're not scared of marketing spend either. I mean, they've increased marketing spend 30% year on year. You know, they're aggressively trying to grow market share and are doing particularly with Louis Vuitton and with with Dior um, as well, and that China piece is interesting because in their you know in their recent comments they were saying they've seen a quote spectacular surge in 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 Chinese demand and particularly Macau, which apparently is one of the only places Chinese consumers can quite freely travel to at the moment without tests and jumping through the the, the various COVID hoops that remain for them. So maybe a leading sort of indicator as to what we might expect from a, a recovery in Chinese demand once you know and, and again LVMH have said they think by the summer they. Hope Hope that Chinese consumers will be able to travel more freely elsewhere as well. So perhaps a bit more in this for LVMH. And I think the one thing that I'll end on is I often forget just how many brands they own, which is like 75. And I was going through the list today and it is a laundry list of those shops you wish you could shop in sometimes. It's, you know, it's Dom Perignon, Hennessy, Glen Morangi, Moet, Dior, Louis Vuitton, Marc Jacobs, Givenchy, Kenzo, Bulgari, Hublot, Tag. I mean, the list is absolutely phenomenal when you think about the, you know, how the esteem those brands are held into your point, David, around protecting those brands. Although the last five I've never heard of. <laughs> I have also been reliably informed it's Moet. Oh, really? Apparently. Oh, that's yeah. my mistake. Another mispronunciation. <laughs> Great. We'll, we'll chalk that one up on the list, I think, uh, of, of, of the many that exist. But the um, Final word on LVMH, though. You know, it is priced for that recovery. If China, you know, any, any row back on that reopening, and that will be you know, actually for a lot of European stocks. So you know, these are not without risk at, at this stage. Absolutely. So... It's that part of the show where we get to have our grumbles again. Uh, any other business? Uh, second one of the year. I don't know about you, but I feel that January was a particularly buoyant month for my growing list of grumbles. But uh, I'll uh, I'll let Will uh, kick us off. I think with, with with his. So obviously January, maybe trying to be a bit healthier, do a bit more cooking, and so I've been looking at a few recipes. And my gripe is prep times. So I don't want to spend hours on this. You know, I want to get my cooking done relatively quickly, bit of prep. And these recipes say, oh, 15 minutes of prep. I'm here 45 minutes later still peeling potatoes. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm doing something significantly wrong uh, or their prep times are a load of nonsense. But I think I'm not alone in that. So that's it's my practice. Your potato, potato peeling. I think it shows a lack of involvement in the kitchen when you were growing up. <laughs> Is that right? Is that right? I th- I'm much more efficient in my prep times. <laughs> I bet you buy those pre-chopped onions, don't Absolutely. you? Ready, 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 washed. <laughs> Come on, then, David. What, what, what's your grumble? Well, um, cancel culture came quite Ooh, quite close okay. to home uh, this this month. Um, the singing group of which I was a founding member. 
got invited to sing at the, I think it's called the Millennium Stadium, or it's probably been renamed the Marmite Stadium or something. I don't know what it is these days. Um, and they were there to sing before the Wales-Ireland match, which was a bit of a non-event, as it happened. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago when I was in there, I would have been there singing along. And um, they. I was turned on the news at 10 the other night, and there were a couple of my old mates, Ivian and, uh, and Goody, on the news, um, explain why they've been banned from singing Delilah. <laughs> uh, so that was quite a shock. Um, so I make no comment about whether Delilah should be banned or not because I don't want to upset um, my my PR people. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes, it was a bit of a surprise. And, and also I was so disappointed that I missed out on my big chance. So really what you've set yourself up for here is now you've outed yourself as a member of a choir. Uh, there is going to be a Christmas carol in December <laughs> and the Christmas episode is there. Songs we don't have to sing. Oh, absolutely, yeah, we are. In the solo bystanders, and this is a solo. I, I was definitely in the chorus. Let me, <laughs> let me just make it very clear. So my one, I was going to go with a different one actually, but Will has just inspired me for one of my other many grumbles I had on my list, which actually also revolves around cooking. And it's um, it's our lovely Jamie Oliver, my fellow Essex uh, person. And it, what frustrates me is his meals in five ingredients thing, because he gets his five ingredients out, ready to go ready to put it in the pan. But all of those recipes also assume that your cupboard is stocked like the spice markets of Marrakesh, where, you know, you have got every spice, every herb, everything you could possibly want to flavour an item. But as I'm sure most of us don't live near the spice markets of Marrakesh, I've got a few garlic granules, some chilli powder and things like that, but I don't have all of these weird and wonderful things. He's just a sprinkle of that, a, a, a splurge of this, a teaspoon of that. I'm sorry, Jamie, get in the real world, mate. You need to be operating with salt, pepper, and a few more basic. You know, that's uncanny, because I used that book last night and made aubergine teriyaki, and I had no problem with my I cupboard. was going to say, <laughs> what are your weird and wonderful spices? Yeah. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mind you, David just did just come back from there. Yeah. But you did just come back from America, so perhaps you brought with you a, a suitcase full of spices and herbs ready for your Jamie Oliver cooking. You'd be amazed after. what you get in a, in, a, in a Wiltshire corner shop in a village. That's true. Not a Morrison's in deepest, darkest Essex, where I live. So anyway, um, thanks for joining us again. And I hope you'll join us all again for the next installment of The Sharp End. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free to go back and listen to those earlier episodes. Last month, Will, David and I spoke about our thoughts for the year ahead and what that means for our positioning, why consumer staples weren't necessarily a staple holding for the funds, and why we're feeling a bit more confident about global cosmetics company Estee Lauder. You can subscribe to the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms um, and some of the smaller ones too. Please don't forget to hit the subscribe and follow button and also feel free to rate and review us as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit us at www.rathbones.com. Thanks again.